Hey, it's Sarah. That's What She Said is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Want to remind you to check out the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina and Dominique Foxworth assess the season outlook for the Niners, Rams, Cardinals, and Mina's beloved Seahawks. You can find the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Glennon Doyle, and my dilemma these days is my wife is an ice chewer. Neither of us can decide whether the problem is mine or hers. Ooh, man, I I really want to chime in and give my opinion because I understand how an ostensibly harmless habit can be inexplicably infuriating to anyone within earshot or any sort of visible distance away. Um, but you guys do this a lot. You offer up your issues on your Instagram, ice chewing versus no ice chewing, open cabinets versus closed cabinets, uh, whether someone should order a large fry instead of a small to acknowledge that you will be eating some of that other person's fries, even though you have said adamantly that you would like no fries. We appreciate it, actually, all the sharing, because, you know, us coupled people out here have our own issues. It's nice to know we're not alone. Uh, For instance, my husband's tendency to offer to help with the dishes as the very last one is being washed, or even better, to say, why don't you leave those? I'll do them, only for me to come back day after day three, four days in a row, staring at them and then finally giving up and realizing my only path to sanity is just to do them myself. And then he'll inevitably walk in with one left. Oh, I was going to do those. Sure you were. And listen, I'm sure I have some sort of flaws. You know, nothing worth dwelling on here. My point is that Abby should probably only chew ice when you're not near her. But you also have admitted to moving close to snuggle with her after she has distanced herself in order to be able to enjoy some ice chewing. So... You're sort of at fault here as well, Glennon. And as a result, um, just this once, I'm actually not going to solve your dilemma because I refuse to rule in a way that would go against either you or your badass wife, both of whom I think are super amazing. And I can't be the arbiter of this. So uh, this has to be solved by you two together. Godspeed. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is the amazing Glennon Doyle. She's an activist, speaker, the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Love Warrior, as well as the New York Times bestseller, Carry On Warrior, which are stories about redemption as she overcame addiction and repaired her family. Now, the author of the New York Times bestseller, and it's been number one or somewhere near there ever since it came out near the beginning of quarantine, Untamed, an absolutely incredible book. Uh, She's also the co-creator of Together Rising, which has raised millions and millions of dollars. Uh, She's amazing. I already was a big fan, and uh, having talked to her now, I want to be her best friend. Um, And I already want to be Abby Wambach's best friend, her wife, so um, it'll be great. We'll all just be, you know, BFFs. Uh, We had a really great, really wide-ranging conversation 
um, about why she turns into such a romantic when she talks about Abby, which I just love, uh, how sometimes their conversations become so overwrought that they start to even spoof themselves midway through some argument about like, am I sad enough about this? I don't know. Are you sad enough about this? I think you should be more sad. I feel like I'm sad enough. No, you're not sad enough. Then they realize how absurd they sound and just make fun of each other and start laughing about it. Um, we talk about uh, how she's managed to separate herself from institutions to understand that a lot of her beliefs and spirituality come from within and not from the ideals presented by somewhere like a church or another institution. Uh, why she was a part of creating the Share the Mic Now campaign, which was so awesome. And if you haven't heard of it, we get into some of the details there. Um, how she recognized the differences between control and leadership and how it took her relationship with Abby to realize that she often thought she was leading when in fact she was controlling. Uh, I loved how she talked about discovering the power of sport for her kids, something that she never really was into before and now sees so much good in. And also that she's finally found this place in her life where she's not searching for something. Uh, she just wants more of the same, which is, I think, a feeling everybody's hoping for. Uh, if you have not read Untamed, I highly recommend it. Man, woman, child, adult, I think there's so much in there for everybody. I did read uh, a segment from it on a previous podcast uh, about racism. You may remember hearing that segment, but it's so wide ranging. It's, it's, it's little vignettes about everything. Um, and if you haven't read it, I just want to read two quick things to sort of set up the table for the conversation that we have here. One is an excerpt sort of about the larger feeling of becoming untamed and free to be yourself, free from constraints that are the expectations of particularly women in this society. And here's that segment. Our culture was built upon and benefits from the control of women. The way power justifies controlling a group is by conditioning the masses to believe that the group cannot be trusted. So the campaign to convince us to mistrust women begins early and comes from everywhere. When we're little girls, our families, teachers, and peers insist that our loud voices, bold opinions, and strong feelings are too much and unladylike. So we learn to not trust our personalities. Childhood stories promise us that girls who dare to leave the path or explore get attacked by big bad wolves and pricked by deadly spindles, so we learn to not trust our curiosity. The beauty industry convinces us that our thighs, frizz, skin, fingernails, lips, eyelashes, leg hair, and wrinkles are repulsive and must be covered and manipulated, so we learn to not trust the bodies we live in. Diet culture promises us that controlling our appetite is the key to our worthiness, so we learn to not trust our own hunger. Politicians insist that our judgment about our bodies and futures cannot be trusted, so our own reproductive systems must be controlled by lawmakers we don't know in places we've never been. The legal system proves to us again and again that even our own memories and experiences will not be trusted. If 20 women come forward and say, he did it, and he says, no, I didn't, they will believe him while discounting and maligning us every damn time and religion, sweet Jesus. The lesson of Adam and Eve, the first formative story I was told about God and a woman was this. When a woman wants more, she defies God, betrays her partner, curses her family, and destroys the world. We weren't born distrusting and fearing ourselves. That was part of our taming. We were taught to believe that who we are in our natural state is bad and dangerous. They convinced us to be afraid of ourselves, so we do not honor our own bodies, curiosity, hunger, judgment, experience, or ambition. Instead, we lock away our true selves. Women who are best at this disappearing act earn the highest praise. She is so selfless. Can you imagine? The epitome of womanhood is to lose oneself completely. That is the end goal of every patriarchal culture, because a very effective way to control women is to convince women to control themselves. 
I tried to control myself for so long. I spent 30 years covering and injecting my face with potions and poison trying to fix my skin. Then I quit and my skin was good. For 20 years, I was attached to a hairdryer and a straightener trying to tame my curls. Then I quit and my hair was good. I binged and purged and dieted for decades trying to control my body. When I quit, my body became what it was always meant to become and it was good too. I numbed myself with food and booze trying to control my anger. When I quit, I learned that my anger never meant that there was something wrong with me. It meant that there was something wrong out there, something I might have the power to change. I stopped being a quiet peacekeeper and started being a loud peacemaker. My anger was good. I had been deceived. The only thing that was ever wrong with me was my belief that there was something wrong with me. I quit spending my life trying to control myself and began to trust myself. We only control what we don't trust. We can either control ourselves or love ourselves, but we can't do both. Love is the opposite of control. Love demands trust. I love myself now. Self-love means that I have a relationship with myself built on trust and loyalty. I trust myself to have my own back, so my allegiance is to the voice within. I'll abandon everyone else's expectations of me before I'll abandon myself. I'll disappoint everyone else before I'll disappoint myself, or I'll forsake all others before I'll forsake myself. Me and myself, we are till death do us part. What the world needs is more women who have quit fearing themselves and started trusting themselves. What the world needs is masses of women who are entirely out of control. So that's a big message throughout all those different ways that we sort of are conditioned to not trust ourselves and to try to conform. Um, and another conversation we get into, which I just love, um, is this idea of whether being married to a man having children, having a family for many years, and then divorcing him and falling in love with Abby uh, means that she's a lesbian or bisexual or anything else with a name. The idea that the love that she has doesn't need a label or a name. And this is a really quick segment that I just love so much. What if what I want to say is, what if I wasn't born this way at all? What if I married Abby, not just because I'm gay, but because I'm smart? What if I did choose my sexuality and my marriage, and they are simply the truest, wisest, most beautiful, most faithful, most divine decisions I've ever made in my entire life? What if I have come to see same-gender love as a really solid choice, just a brilliant idea, something I would highly recommend? And what if I demand freedom, not because I was, quote, born this way and, quote, can't help it, but because I can do whatever I choose to do with my love and my body from year to year, moment to moment, because I'm a grown woman who does not need any excuse to live however I want to live and love whomever I want to love? What if I don't need your permission slip because I'm already free? I just love the permission that that gives people to love another human being, regardless of any qualifiers about them. So those kind of set the table for this conversation, which I absolutely loved, and I hope you guys love it too. That's what she said. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I am so happy to have Glennon Doyle on the podcast. I remember the first time I heard about Glennon Doyle was a Washington Post story about a Christian mommy blogger who wrote a book about her husband cheating on her and how they had it 
fixed and figured out and got back together. And then the last line of the story was a week after this, she posted that they did separate again and you can't always fix everything. And I was like, whoa, there is so much going on with this lady. Uh, I am not a mom. I am not a Christian. I'm not a blogger. And so I remember then following up and realizing that this same woman I had read about before was now dating someone from my world, Abby Wambach, and psh, all sorts of ideas. And now I'm obsessed. Now I love your Instagram and your books and your writing. And I'm so grateful that you intersected into my sportsy world so that I could be given the pleasure of, uh, of understanding why everybody else is so obsessed with you. There is so much to get to. So I am not going to do my usual of what kind of kid were you like? I'm going to start by just quickly telling everyone the overview so that everything we talk about after this makes sense. Correct me if any of this is wrong. <laughs> I'll try. Okay. You started drinking when you were 16, tried every drug possible, quit drinking when you were 25, when you got pregnant and decided you needed to keep the baby. There was something in your heart telling you to keep the baby. You got married to your husband. You graduated college. You were a teacher in Virginia. These are all kind of not in the same timeline, but- 14 years of marriage, three kids. You wrote Carry On Warrior and founded Momastery, realized that you wanted your voice to be heard by people everywhere. And just as you started the tour for Carry On Warrior, your husband admits to you that he's cheating. So then over the next couple of years, while you're dealing with that, you decide to write Love Warrior, uh, which is about the cheating and the family and the husband and everything. And then when you start to tour for that, you meet and fall in love with Abby get divorced, and start writing Untamed. And now you are touring for Untamed, and I'm deeply concerned for whatever is about to happen to you. I hope it's only good things, but let's start there. Are you on pins and needles right now about what's <laughs> happening in your life and what's about to come? Listen, first of all, I'm sweating. I mean, oh my <laughs> God, no wonder I'm so tired. <laughs> all right. So right before the tour for Untamed... I was doing a New York Times interview and the lady said, every time you release a book, everything goes to shit. So like, are you terrified? And I was like, no, because we're there. Like it's starting tomorrow. It's starting tomorrow. And then Corona hit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, so this is your fault. I oh, think okay. so. I th <laughs> Thank you. Very little. <laughs> I, th I think it might be my fault. Um, yeah. It's been a doozy. It's yeah. I just found a Facebook post from two years ago that was like, this is my 14th flight in 19, or this is my 14th of 19 flights this month and next month. And I can't remember what time zone I'm in. And isn't there just like something where you just sit at home with your dogs and don't talk to anyone? And I'm like, well, thanks universe. It's not exactly what I was looking for, but you delivered it a couple years late. Um, okay. We're going to get into coronavirus and all that, but I want to ask you, your, your willingness to share how you feel in the moment is one of the reasons people love you, but it is incredibly vulnerable because from the moment that you started loving and being with Abby, you were like, this is my person. I love her. I've figured everything out now. So knowing what you know about who you are in your relationship, when you go back and you read Carry On Warrior or Love Warrior, do you recognize that person and do you believe what they're saying or do you think mm -hmm. you believed it then, but you didn't really have it figured out? I'm always so fascinated by this idea that if 10 years ago I wrote something different about who I was, the question is like, were you lying? Or <laughs> like, it, doesn't everybody change? Yeah. Like if you, I, I mean, has nobody kept a diary? Like when you look back on yourself five years ago or 10 years ago, isn't it completely different than what you're, I, I don't know. I think part of the um, job of being a writer is that you 
put different iterations of yourself because that is life, right? Aren't we just constantly evolving into different versions of ourselves? I am. Um, so when I look back at my books, I get, I feel a little cringy. <laughs> I feel a little bit like I can't believe that this is going to be out there forever. Right. And then I get so, I think it's so funny. I read a, a review of, um, untamed recently where the person who was reviewing it said that the whole time she was reading love warrior, she had two thoughts. One was this, this lady's a good writer. The second was nice. Good start. This, this girl is gay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Holy shit. Like, so uh, that makes me sweaty. Like do people yeah. <laughs> actually read my stuff and know more about me than I do in the moment? And like, what are they, they're, now they're reading Untamed. What do they know? I want them to email me. Right. right? And tell me what Save else they time. know about me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I completely agree with everything. It's just interesting to me because I do think you can look back and be like, oh my gosh, I thought I had it all figured out. Mm-hmm. And you, so much of Untamed is about deprogramming and unlearning what you think are the parameters of life and expectation in order to live outside of them. Um, But first you have to recognize those. And I wonder if you feel like in your previous books, whether you were, whether you were seeking something that was still within parameters that you didn't know existed. And if now you can look back and part of the cringing is like, Oh, that felt right. But now I realize I just was, you know, it was all about the expectations of others. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll look back on essays and think, oh, that's so cute. Like, I um, I still believe the gist of that essay, but the language I was using, it would be totally different, right? So, so I was writing a book about, or an essay about love and God, and I used the word like Jesus or something 60 times. Now I would be meaning the, I would be meaning the same thing but I would use completely different language because I feel like as I get older, I just feel more and more wide. Like I just feel more and more inclusive. I think if you're, if you're living openly, if your mind and heart is open, you're constantly learning other people's experiences and other people's perspectives. And hopefully that is widening you to, to change your views, to change your language, to change all of it, to constantly be more inclusive. Right. And you seek religion and God and spirituality inside yourself first. Now it feels like mm-hmm. instead of within the parameters of a book or a building. I'm, yeah. 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 And I mean, I think that one thing that I really do know is that, I mean, I was a part of a pretty fundamentalist religion and any fundamentalist religion or institution doesn't have to be a religion. It feels to me No, I'm not going to say that. I know that the first order of business is separation from self, right? So like in Christianity, what that looks like in fundamentalist Christianity is over and over again, you're taught your heart is wicked. You can't trust yourself. You're, you're terrible. You were born with sin. And it's just like, Oh, so, so what happens over time is you completely stop trusting your inner self. And that is purposeful because then what they tell you is don't trust yourself, trust God. You're fully, what they, yeah. Right. But what they really mean is don't trust yourself, trust us. 
Mm-hmm. Right? We're the conduit for God, so you got to go through us so then we're able to control what, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's how fundamentalist anybody gets foot soldiers, right? To do their power bidding. It has nothing to do with God and nothing and never has. Because the truth that what I believe is that God is that inner self that that you've been now told not to trust. So any separation from that inside of religion, that's why religion is the hardest place to find God. Because it's the effort to separate you from that deep inner knowing that is what I would call the God that, you know, and everybody calls it something different. Um, people call it intuition or gut. I have a friend who calls it Sebastian because she has some God <laughs> issues. Like who the hell cares? <laughs> I hope but, she's picturing the lobster from the little yeah, mermaid. I think she I is. I think she is. <laughs> I think she is. And like Abby would never, I mean, she doesn't want to hear this God shit, right? We are like, totally she was raised as a gay kid in the catholic church Mm -hmm. right so she along the line thought that god was against her instead of just freaking religion being against her which is a different thing so i have i can't imagine having a problem with when i'm talking about the inner deepest self like in my head i might call it god but when i'm talking to abby about it i'm always calling it intuition or universe or whatever who cares yeah who cares that's one of my favorite parts of the book is the conversation that you have with her in the church. Um, and I'm curious for you, um, you were always open even before your divorce and before falling in love with Abby about um, LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. You were not, you were not um, maybe fundamentalists in your, in your views of, of their right to, to live and love. Um, but there was still a massive risk in having established yourself as a Christian mommy blogger and pivoting to, I'm a lesbian. Oh, and also like, I love God, but religion's kind of effed. Um, how did you have the power and belief that all of your, you know, love warriors and followers and Glennonites would, uh, would be willing to, to move with you, um, as you pulled them away from maybe their safe space or maybe even the cognitive dissonance that they had for, well, she says that about gay people, but everything else is cool. So I think I can stick with her as this Christian kind of role model. Right. Okay. So first of all, let me tell you something that you probably don't know about this Christian mommy blogger shit. Okay. Nobody called me a Christian mommy blogger until I came out with Abby. Never one time, (laughs) never one time in my entire career did, was I ever referred to as a Christian mommy blogger until I came out with Abby. And then the headlines became Abby Wambach in love with Christian mommy blogger. Okay. The reason why is because that's great clickbait. Because what could be more shocking than than somebody falling in love with Abby Wambach unless she's a Christian mommy blogger, okay? First of all, calling a writer, there's no man on earth who have written written three best-selling books, right? Who has raised $27 million for um, activism, who's out in the world, who would have been announced as what a Buddhist daddy blogger. Like (laughs) the fact that I was introduced to the world by my relationship as a mother, by the word mommy blogger, which is just what you call a woman who has a uterus and writes. Okay. On the interwebs is just straight up all misogyny. Okay. So I, I just would like to leave that there. (laughs) No, that's incredibly powerful and true. Yeah. 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 
Um, so the, the truth is that I had been writing about things that pertain to a woman's life. Okay. So when a writer writes about anything that pertains to a woman's life, she's dismissed as a blogger, chick lit, chick flicks, right? When a man writes about things that pertain to the world and man's life, it's called literature. <laughs> okay. So real quick, I reject all of this. <laughs> Secondly, um, I don't, I had always, my, uh, writing and platform had um, always been this kind of Trojan horse inside the Christian world. I mean, yes, I went to church. I also constantly talked about race issues in our country and about white supremacy and about patriarchy and about feminism and about LGBTQ rights. I mean, by the time Abby and I met, I've, I've been to more gay pride parades than she had. And she's the gayest gay that ever gay. Okay. <laughs> so... There was no surprise to my community. That's what, I mean, listen, it was a little surprising that I was actually, <laughs> so I'm not going to say that, but there was no, um, there was no departure from what I had always been talking about. Right. It was more of like a manifestation of, holy shit, she's actually doing this shit. She's been talking about there. So if you had, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to, always talk about what you believe so that when you have to step into it, it's, you've already lost the right people. Right. 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 So I had already lost the right people. That's why when people were so surprised by the way my community um, embraced us, I wasn't. Yeah. yeah that's incredible. Um, what about your own faith in what you were feeling? I love the way you write about seeing Abby for the first time. I reread it. It was so romantic. And then the first time you met at the hotel and all the messages, I mean, it just was so beautiful, but I'm curious. I, I know you said on a different podcast that you literally stood up and just opened your arms mm. and you were like, Oh, what am I doing? I'm just staring at this stranger, like a weirdo. What am I doing? Um, so tell that story, but also did, was there any part of you that previously had been um, attracted to a being, man, woman, whatever, that had had you questioning whether you were just straight as an arrow? Because a lot of us, I think, uh, get older in life and realize it's not binary. It's you might, you know, mm -hmm. think someone's cute for whatever yeah. reason. Um, but to see Abby and be like, "This is love," is a wild. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, I'm still trying to figure all of this out. Like my my. I was talking to a friend. I'll tell you the story about Abby in one second, but I, I was talking to a friend quite recently who was like, okay, can we just talk about, can we just like, <laughs> like, so, so were you always gay? This is what everyone wants to know. Like, were you always Put gay and you're lying? No. Right. Yeah. Exactly. What are you? What are you? Um, so were you always gay and you didn't know it? Or just, can you just t tell me? And I said, okay, look, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure all this out, but you know, I mean, like I've always, I've always thought that women were like way more attractive than men. Like women's bodies are like way more attractive than men's bodies. But like everyone thinks that. And she goes, no, Glennon, everyone doesn't think that. Like, I don't think that. And I was like, what? Well, shit, we should, this is why we should talk more, right? So I think that more will be revealed about that whole situation. But when I met Abby, um, I was sitting at the first event to launch Love Warrior. 
which was already chosen by Oprah as her book club pick, which was literally being touted as a marriage redemption story. Okay. Because my timing is awesome. And so I'm at this uh, event and, and, and listen, I was in a, a broken marriage to a good man. And that is a really freaking hard place to be because we're supposed to be grateful for what we have. And is it bad enough to leave? And is it, uh, and um, a lot of, a lot had gone down in our marriage, but we had worked really hard to recover from it. And so there was a lot to be grateful for actually. Um, and also I was always pissed off. I was just like this bubbling river of rage. right? So that was fun for all of us. And, um, and I, I really did have, I'm not, I've never been a romantic person, not a day in my life. Now I think I know why, because I was never in a situation, in a relationship that felt romantic to me. It was just, it, everything felt very practical. Like there, you're a suitable partner. Here I am. <laughs> um, so, but I still did have this little like wondering, like, is it, could this, could this be real? This whole romance thing? Like it was just this, just this ache, you know, like, will I, will I ever have this? And it's so sad that I won't ever have this, you know? Um, so I'm in that room and I'm sitting with a bunch of writers who are also launching books. It's like this librarian's convention. There's a thousand librarians. It was so hot. <laughs> and, um, and I, I'm trying to make small talk with this writer lady and she kind of turns her head toward the door. So I turned my head to the door and Abby's standing in the doorway because she was launching her book forward. And listen, I don't understand. It's so embarrassing to tell this story because I just, <laughs> I just used to like cringe at these sorts of stories. So it's humiliating that this is now part of my life, but it, it is what it is. So I look at her and I'm just like, I, don't, I lose my mind. My entire, everything is just like, there she is. Okay. There she is. Like, like I'd been looking for this person forever. Like we were having a reunion <laughs> instead of meeting. Okay. The only problem is it's only a reunion for me. <laughs> okay. I'm the only one having this experience in the room. So I, there, the joke in my family is that there's no awkward moment that I can't up that I can't make more awkward. Okay. So that happens. So everyone's looking over at Abby because by the way, we are a bunch of nerds at this table. Like we are writers. We don't know how to talk to each other. And now this, like the mocking Jay is in the door. Okay. None of us have ever seen anyone as cool as this. Yeah. There's no cool in the room. Right. Until, so we're just all staring at her. But then I just stand up looking at her and throw my arms open towards her. But I don't do it consciously. So by the time I have figured out what's going on, I'm just standing and she's staring at me like, what the holy hell? So now I have to figure out how to get from this wide open standing position because because all the, the, all the, 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 the heads have turned back towards me. <laughs> Everyone is now staring at me. So listen to what I did. Now we do this as a family joke. I just bowed towards her. Okay. I bowed hoping that maybe she would think this is just my normal greeting, even though had she been the queen of England, this would have been extra. Okay. So I bow <laughs> and I sit back down. 
Oh my goodness. And I'm just sweating and she's just like awkwardly making her way around the room. Okay. She sits down. Well, first of all, I ask her for a hug when she gets to me because mm, normal. Is that cuz that that really You're lowered. like every man in a nightclub. Right, exa- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> just creepy right off the bat. Just there's no level of creeping. Yes. So, she gives me a hug. Probably she's very scared. And then she goes and sits down. She thinks you're the biggest fan. Wow, that lady is a huge (laughs) soccer fan. The hilarious thing is I knew nothing about the soccer, right? But you knew who she was. Yes, I did know who she was because, um, first of all, we had the program. So I knew she was coming. And also because um, my children, I had watched her last something, something big (laughs) that was on the television. Yeah. There was lots of people in the audience and um, my children were really into it. (laughs) And I actually remember now when we talk about all the things, I remember watching her play the soccer and being like, huh, I really like soccer. Yeah. (laughs) Am am I interested in sports all of a sudden? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So then I excused myself to go to the bathroom because that's what I do during social situations. I try to kill as much time as possible by going to the bathroom lots of times. Um, Because as you might know, at this point in our podcast, I'm a little bit socially awkward. (laughs) Okay. So when I come back out to the hallway, Abby is standing in the hallway and she says, can I talk to you? And I'm like, oh my God, I actually don't think so. (laughs) I don't know if I can pull this off. So she has read my bio and she knows that I write and talk a lot about addiction and recovery. Okay. Because I'm recovering everything. I actually... The one thing that you didn't mention in my bio is my addictions actually started when I was 10. So I became bulimic when I was 10. So this most of my life has been dealing with active addiction or recovering from addiction. Um, And so she comes up to me and she says, so as you know, as you might probably know, I've been having a rough time lately. (laughs) And I'm like, how would I know? Well, you just bowed to me and hugged me. So I had a feeling you might know literally anything about me, like all the news and headlines that just happened. Okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. No one's pointed that out to me yet. That's excellent. Okay. So I said, okay, so like, how would I know this? Where would I have seen this? And she says, I don't know, like on ESPN. And I was like, I promise you, I haven't seen any of this on ESPN. Okay. So she tells me, that she has just retired from soccer and that she's having a very hard time and she has been, her drinkings have been out of control and she talks to me about some things that went down with the DUI and she's just in a really hard place. And she said, I'm writing this book and they want me to write it as a, like a fluff piece about, you know, a soccer hero. And she's like, but I'm just feeling like, what if I just told the truth about my life? And Sister, I was like, hot damn. Like, she has now brought up all of my things, okay? Like, she's brought up drinking, writing, and shame. These are like the only three things I know about, okay? And she has just 
served them to me. So, so I just start talking about like, you know, truth telling and shame being what keeps us inside of addiction. And also like, who cares? I'm a writer and an activist. So all of my friends are addicts. Like this is not like a big deal to me. <laughs> right. But in the sports world, she's had to be so shiny and perfect and all the things. So I remember saying like, you're going to be in the real world now. And in the real world, we like real people. Right. So, um, so that's our first conversation. And then we go up on the dais with these people and we launch our books. We have only those five minutes together alone. And she goes back to her life and I go back to mine. I know it's just the most romantic. I mean, and then you start, you know, talking back and forth and, um, I, there's so much trust that what you were feeling was not lust or infatuation or a momentary mm -hmm. thing. And I'm curious cause, um, I have a friend and actually I think mutual friends with you, who I won't name just in case, you know, but I was worried about her because she had been an out lesbian for a number of years and had a number of relationships with other out lesbians and met a woman who was just coming out of, div of divorce mm -hmm. to a man and had not had any relationships with women before. And they fell so hard and so fast. And I wanted to be so happy. And inside I was like, Oh, what if this is like a phase or like, what if she does love you and it's great, but like eventually she's going to see that she wants to be with men or just another woman. Cause you were just the first woman. And then she's going to figure some stuff out and move on. And they're married now. And they're like the most in love people ever along with you and Abby. Um, so I wonder you had to trust yourself, which I'm sure was actually easier than Abby trusting that what you were feeling was not mm -hmm. just rebellion or re a reaction to what your husband had, had done and how that had ended. How do you kind of describe her ability to know that what she was getting from you was, was like a real thing that would lead to what you have now? God, that's such an interesting question. Nobody's asked it to me yet. And it's just like taking me back to that time and all the conversations we had about it. I mean, for me, I just, I, I had this, I mean, the only thing I can call it is a knowing. I was scared in the beginning of what the hell is this? I did have the benefit of, of, of feeling all of these things for the first time. So I had never experienced this before, which made it very easy to understand that something different was happening to me now than had ever happened in my previous relationships, including my marriage, right? I had to figure out, I remember thinking, oh, I am this like, feminist who goes out in the world and says, women should be trusted, but it's a whole different thing for a woman to trust herself to lead her own life. Right? So it's a really big decision. Like, do I trust this or do I not? I remember having conversations with Abby where, I mean, her friends were so scared. Mm. I remember her friend saying, this woman is not going to leave her husband. This woman is not going to, this, this is not going to happen. She's right. going to use you for a book and then she's going to start right, the tour. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so guess what? Actually, that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, Abby's the one who insisted that I write our love story. She was offended with the idea that I might not. There's nothing Abby likes more than when I talk about her. Okay. <laughs> After this interview, she'll be like, tell me everything that you said. Um. So I don't know. It was when I think about it, when you're talking about it, just, it was such trust with her. I mean, I remember her talking about I'm how many times she's been like an experiment mm. for a woman and how many times she's been hurt by that. And, um, you know, we talked about that a lot, a lot. I mean, 
there was so much trust that I, that I was going to trust myself. You're going to trust yourself. I'm going to trust you. You're going to trust me. And, and all of our people are going to trust us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the chances of this working out the way it did were just 0%. Yeah. Well, you, 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 as you paused before, there was so much trust. I thought you were going to say talking because that's something else you've said. You put two women in a relationship and it's just like communication overload. And I love when you just post Abby with like a blanket over her whole body, like physically like enough, we're done. And and actually I'm curious about that because um, I I agree and always have with the kind of idea that an unexamined life is not a full one. But at the same time, I did recognize that at one point in my life, probably around the same time everybody else goes through their 20s emo phase where like everything is so dramatic. Um, and I was in a relationship with someone who was had a very religious background and everything needed to be analyzed and we're ev- everybody's guilty of everything and we're all just trying to make you know just all the the guilt i don't have that cuz i didn't grow up with religion so at, at the beginning i was like and he was a writer and i was a writer and so it was all the clashes of um of creativity and examination and it felt like how you're supposed to be in my head mm-hmm. but i was not happy mm-hmm. and so how do you find the balance between Yes, I want to examine things. Yes, I want to talk and think and dig, but also not to the point where like you're just always trying to find something that's wrong or mm. a problem or something to grill each other about and dig. Like sometimes just let it be and be happy and know the choices that will allow you to just like chill. <laughs> right. So so the, the 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 answer to that is we have not figured out that. <laughs> so I when I tell you this you're going to be tempted to not believe me and you're going to need to believe me. Okay. Last night, Abby and I talked during dinner and after for a half an hour about whether I was sad enough when she was sad. <laughs> okay. Whether my sadness. Cartoon. It's, oh, it got to the point where maybe 35 minutes in, we both looked at each other. And we just burst out laughing. But 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 I'm telling you, the second before the laughing, you couldn't have found more two serious people. Well, I'm I'm sad when you're sad. Are you sad enough when I'm sad? And maybe we just express our sadness different. And maybe we need an exercise. Like it's it, it can't be believed. It, sometimes, like I'm in the middle. We're in the middle of a conversation, and I can't tell if it's like an actual spoof of a conversation or a real conversation. So. The, the answer to your question is we have not found the balance in that. We, my friend Liz, Liz Gilbert is one of my best friends. When she was in love, yes, yes. When she was in her relationship with her partner, Rhea, who has died since then, um, we used to, the four of us used to talk about how our lives were just like women who just wake up and just, you know, those women in those cultures who just go by a river and they just beat out dirty rugs all day long. Like that's what our talking is from morning <laughs> until night. And then we wake up and we look at each other's eyes and we start again. So maybe we're just using up all of our words now. And by the time we're 50, we'll stop talking completely. I don't know. But you see, you seem overwhelmed with happiness. So yeah. 
Either, either, and I hope this isn't the case, you're kind of in the infatuation period where you're like, it's so great to know every part of you. And then eventually you'll be like, that's too much, too many parts. Um, Yeah, Yeah, it's like um, my kids, I taught them to express their feelings a lot. And now it just was a mistake. It it was a big mistake. And I look at them sometimes when they're talking about their feelings. And I just want to say, I just forgot to teach you about suffering. Right, right. Suffering silently is important. Also, you're like, I'm really worried for you that you're not going to have any friends and ever get laid. You need no friends. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, I ruined them. (laughs) You know, something that you've talked about, which I love as a sportsy sportser is, um, and I I think uh, I love that you've been thrust into our world and you acknowledge that it's new for you. And there's a lot of people that you don't know who they are or why they're great. But um, I like that you said that Abby taught your kids how to carry on. Because mm-hmm. in sports, we talk so much about how you have to learn how to lose and win and be a leader and be teammates with someone you hate and work with the coach you hate and hurt yourself and and fail and get back. And if you've lived that your whole life, which I did, you take it all for granted. You're like, oh, everybody knows how to do those things. And then you meet people and they try something and they suck and they just never do it again. And you're like, what are you doing? You have to keep doing it until you win and you're the best at it. <laughs> Wait, that might just be me. Um, oh, but God. I love that. You people, you people with your winning. I mean, listen, I can't get out of my effing car to walk to the grocery store without getting in a race with my wife. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not racing you. Well, no I would have already cares. raced the cars on the street to get to the grocery oh, store. Oh, same. That's, she does that too. She tells me to hustle. She says the word hustle to me. Um, but I love that you're seeing that later in life through those eyes because it's new for you. Um, and and so you have noticed in your kids a difference in their carrying on because of that. Because your husband was a was a what semi-pro soccer player too. Mm-hmm. So you do have a type. Mm-hmm. Very specific oh, little Venn diagram that he said interesting. soccer. Um, but he didn't have that same uh way of 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 teaching that. Okay, so here's the deal with that. I felt like I was just a good leader in my previous marriage, but all three of us, Abby, Craig, and I have come to understand that I was just maybe controlling to the like 10th, to the just nth power. Okay. So I do believe that Craig probably would have pushed the soccer more had I not be just been completely dedicated to making them like emo poets. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when, when Abby came, Abby is uncontrollable. <laughs> okay. So none of my powers worked anymore. So Abby looked at our emo poets and decided, holy shit. Like, no, no, these children need to learn how to live also. Okay. So she and Craig banded together. And this is how we ended up in the soccer because my goal for them with sports before Abby came was clear and it was mediocrity. Okay. I want you to learn enough to not embarrass yourself on the weekends, but I do not want you to ruin my weekends by being good. And then I have to go places and, and rent hotels and hang out with people I don't know and protect. Like I just, no. So then Abby came and everything changed. And I did resist in the beginning because she had her, she had our kids try out for these soccer teams that are just not like the ones where no one knows anything. 
that's what we were on before, the happy, the happy ones, okay? (laughs) But now we were on the serious ones. Um, And here's the thing that I'm going to tell you. I know I am new to this, and maybe my fresh eyes are part of my awe with this situation. I am the one who loves the soccer the most in my house now, okay? I understand. My children are different. Soccer has taught them things that I have been trying to teach them with words, Mm-hmm. force about character, about not, not giving up, about working with other people, about being disappointed, about carrying. I mean, I find it to be a magical character building situation that about leadership, about following about, I mean, I have this little one who is not comfortable with feelings. Okay. During the divorce, one day I said to her, we have to talk about your feelings. And she said, I do not know where to find them. (laughs) Okay. So I just made a mental note, like therapy forever for that one. Right. (laughs) So she on the soccer field has learned how to experience all of the emotions, Mm -hmm. like embarrassment, recovery, pride, all of it within the safe, you know, two hours or whatever, seven million hours is what it feels like to me. Okay. But of a game. Yeah. The, I am so, I told, and then these freaking national team, I mean, all of my dreams converging, like the feminism, the fight, the like women using their bodies for something that is not posing and performing, the like activism. I can't, I told Abby one day, I will spend the rest of my life doing everything that I can do to get as much attention as possible to this team. Mm-hmm. So what I'm telling you, is that I am a disciple. <laughs> yes, join us. I, I know not not many things, <laughs> but I care the most amount. I love it. I love it. And the women's national team truly is. I wrote about how, like, at one point I found them aspirational, and then I was just like, they're instructional. Like, oh, I, yeah. Yes. Yeah, like, I, I, I was like, oh, I want to be them. And now I'm like, no, 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 I need to be like them. I need to do what they're doing and follow. And so much of your book feels like that. It's like this untamed, instead of just feeling like, oh, I wish I could, it's this idea of, um, in some ways, we need to only try to control what we can, right? Mm -hmm. So for instance, right now in coronavirus, one of the keys is like, what can I accomplish today? What happens tomorrow? Not what's going to happen in three months, because that's terrifying. You can only control the things you can control. But so much of untamed is maybe unlearning what things feel uncontrollable and unchangeable Mm -hmm. so that you can stop restricting yourself, believing in bigger change. And I mean, we'll get to Together Rising and that's a huge part of what you do, but like, I'm sure you couldn't have possibly imagined what you guys have accomplished had you limited yourself to, you know, that's not something that I can take on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious when you, when you think about being present in the moment and being a control freak and understanding when you have to let go, how do you also then allow yourself to think big about things like our government or policing or um, uh, expectations for women or, you know, bullshit stereotypes about our bodies. How does all that stuff then not feel um, like make you feel powerless? And and how do you decide that you're willing to write about it and try to look at it differently and change it? 
That's like the biggest question. Mm. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I guess I think it's all just because it's, it's all the same thing. Like if the idea of being untamed, I mean, untamed is really just about unlearning social conditioning, right? That makes us not free, right? That makes, you know, conditioning about race, conditioning about religion, conditioning about gender, about sexuality, about relationships, about all of it, that keeps us from living as free as we possibly can as individuals, because we have this really crappy setup which is that we are born these wild individual selves. And then most of us have a few good years of freedom of just living from our imaginations, our intuitions and like these boundless ways. But then our social conditioning really, we really start to formally internalize it from the ages of seven to 13. Okay. So this is when we, it's happening to us through media, through our parents, through um, all of it, but but we really start to understand it at that point. So that's when we look at things and go, oh, I'm a boy. I can't cry mm-hmm. because I'm a boy, right? Oh, I'm a girl. I can't lead because that's bossy. I'm a girl. Oh, I'm a Christian, I guess. That's what they tell me. So I got to believe these things, even though I don't really believe that shit. So I'll just pretend I do. Okay. So I'm a straight woman. So so it, I'm a doyle. I'm a American. I'm a white person. I'm a, so, and, and then the sad part is, is that we have these, these things set up that, um, we get our safety from belonging Mm -hmm. and we earn our belonging by abandoning ourselves, right? Because there is no little boy on earth who doesn't need to cry, who doesn't need to feel vulnerable. They just have to abandon that part of themselves, right? In order to earn the safety of belonging to boy, right? So really the idea of like what people have been saying forever, of course, which is the deeply personal is the most deeply political me in this personal investigation of freeing myself from all of these um, categories and structures that have kept me limited led directly to, if I'm trying to figure out how I've been conditioned as a Christian and that's making me slowly die inside and lie to myself and have two lives and oppress other groups and other people, if that personal investigation is of course going to lead to action, wanting to free all of us from that. If my, there's no woman, I mean, there's no white woman on earth right now, I hope that would even dare to write a book about deconditioning herself that wouldn't address her her programming as a white person inside of white supremacy. Right. Right. Because that affects everything. So that personal investigation, of course, leads leads me to want to undo that conditioning that is killing other uh, other people. Right. So it's all totally connected. Right. Yeah. Right. You can't really do one without the other. And that's one of the reasons why I don't believe this whole like idea that, you know, thinking about ourselves is, is navel gazing or whatever. Like, no, because when you're thinking about yourself we're always thinking about how does this self that I am walking around living as affect other people around me? And then it becomes about all of us. Well, and when you write so honestly and vulnerably about the things that you think and feel and go through and other people recognize that in themselves, it gives them the freedom to feel and talk about and be open and change. And a lot of people don't get that about writing about oneself, right? three memoirs for the same lady. Like how many things have you done? Uh, but it totally, it totally makes sense. And I want to talk, you mentioned um, 
white supremacy and racism. I have been um, probably illegally posting pages from your book on the internet. Oh, great. Um, great. People don't have to buy it. My bad. Um, <laughs> my people will come after you anyway. Uh, yeah, actually, that's what my friend said when I was like, Glennon's coming to my podcast. She's like, oh, I guess she's not mad about you, uh, you know. Um, and then I read part of the racism chapter on this podcast a couple weeks ago after having oh a prominent um, African-American studies chair from Princeton on because I just felt like it spoke so specifically to what a lot of white women, but white people in general are feeling and should be feeling. Um, you wrote in the book that you were already nervous that it was going to come out a year from when you were writing it and you were going to be wrong and no different things, but so powerfully and perfectly use that Maya Angelou quote about, you know, I'm going to be my best right now. And then I'm going to be better when I can be. So like you have to forgive yourself for what you know now and allow yourself to be constantly learning. But that chapter knocked me on my ass. And it, and it happened to be that I was reading this book not long before the unrest that's going on right now. And I keep trying to get people to read it because it's so honest about, um, and, and I'm, I'm curious since you did say that you like me tend to think that you have the best ideas and yes, let's listen to everybody and then come back around and realize that mine was always the right answer and the best one. Um, how do you, as someone who likes to be heard and have people listen to your thoughts, um, deal with it when you realize you're, you don't know enough, you've, you've got a million more things to learn. You're going to make mistakes. It's going to hurt when people tell you you're wrong and you don't know if you're used to being someone who gets the pleasure of people saying, oh, that's great that you know that. And thanks for teaching me that. Um, how have you kind of dealt with accepting that and still pressing on and, and wanting to learn and, and be a part of the change? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think as a white American woman, there's nothing more important that I could possibly do than become part of anti-racism work. Like in this country, I, I can't imagine that there's anything more important just as our responsibility of Americans. Um, I think that part of the privilege that I have had to consciously give up um, to become part of this most important work is the privilege of everyone liking me. Mm -hmm. That should be easy. It is not easy for me, okay? And, and, and some of my friends have taught me that this is actually part of white supremacy, that the idea of white women being perfect and beloved and um, precious and uh, of course fragile to, to people not liking what we do, um, is is part of the whole thing because that's what keeps us from speaking up right is this fear so um that is and 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 and, and it's it's super important i think to to for me what i had to learn is there is no right okay so um for example you you can't my first one of my first actions i did i showed up i did it all crazy and, and everyone got mad at me. <laughs> okay. Everyone, everyone. Yeah. yeah. If, if there's a way to piss everyone off, <laughs> I did it. Okay. But I called a dear friend afterwards and just said, she's a black woman activist. And, and she's just, she's, she just picked up the phone laughing. She was like, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. And she said, and I said, um, I did this thing and now everyone's mad at me and I don't know what I did wrong. And she said, you didn't do it wrong. You just did it. 
This is what it is. Mm. And there was an air of join the club. Like, this is what black women have been doing for so long. Everyone's mad at us. Like, what do you think you're going to get? Like, you think you're going to come in and now everybody's going to cheer for you? Like, just join or don't, you know, but this is what it is. So like, you know, I think there, it's so scary to us because we are used to, I'm going to say this thing, right. I'm going to do this thing, right. And if if I do it right, everyone's going to clap and it's going to be awesome. Mm. That has in no way been my experience ever. (laughs) Okay. So like we did this really big, fantastic, uh, action last week called share the mic now. Okay. Yeah. So I did that with a few, a few, uh, friends, Bozoma St. John, Levy, Ajay Jones, these amazing black women leaders. And my job was to get the white women. Okay. So Levy literally said to me, okay, so we're, you go get the white women. I'm going to go get the black women. <laughs> so I just sat at my kitchen table, like, what the, what does that mean? Like, why do I keep doing this? Like wh- <laughs> Abby came in the room. She's like, what, what, what's wrong? I'm like, I have to I have to go get the white women, but like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and Abby's like, Jesus, like what? So the point is that over time we did get the white women. <laughs> we did get the black women. Yeah, I mean, that women. your career, you've done a great job of getting the white women. So right. I feel like you were, you were made for this. <laughs> Somehow it worked out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so one of the important things is when I, we would have some of our zoom meetings all together with the black women and the white women. And then some of our zoom meetings, I would just have with the white women and they would have with the black women. Okay. Because it was like our white lady meetings. Like, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. We're not going to cry. <laughs> we're not going to all of our white lady meetings. Right. Yeah. And so, um, one of the things that I said was, here's what's this, this has been, this action has been built on relationships and trust. Okay. Yeah. And as we go into tomorrow, we are going to continue to trust. And what I don't mean by trust is that we're going to trust that we're going to show up. And everything's going to go well. <laughs> and, 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 um, and we're going to be comfortable the whole time and nothing's going to go wrong and everyone's going to like us. What I mean is that we're going to trust that we're going to show up tomorrow and we're going to be really uncomfortable and a whole lot's going to go wrong. And a lot of people are going to be mad at us <laughs> and it's still going to be right. Right. Yeah. So it's like this whole other counting the cost of. And it's not just going rogue, okay? Never, ever do I do anything in anti-racism work that isn't led by a black woman. Right. Ever. Like, this is not, if I'm out there speaking, it's because somebody has told me to, <laughs> right? So, and, and what I've learned is that those people that we are being advised by, that we are being trained by, that we are working in, in, with in actions have to be people we're in relationships with. Right. And that because was the that's where the trust comes. That's where the, the accountability comes. Yeah. That was one yeah. of the most important parts of the sort of vision statement bullet points there was that these were going to be relationships formed and fostered that would then help you work together going forward because that's necessary. I find it's interesting for me. Um, I don't mind taking the slings and arrows when I'm defending women, particularly in a male dominated field. I know I'm going to get hate. I know people are going to be, but I feel so certain of the idea of what I'm representing, which is that I belong here. We belong here. I can do this job. You're, you're wrong. You're so wrong in what you're saying. And I feel the same way about anti-racism work, but because I myself do not have any lived experiences as a black person, I'm always worried I'm doing it wrong or saying it wrong or that I'm not welcome. And I had this conversation with a, a black friend and I, I said, and I tried to express like, 
I wear all sorts of um, gay pride gear, even though I'm married to a man and I'm sensibly straight. Although I do find some women very attractive. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I feel comfortable in it and I don't care whether people think when I'm wearing it, I'm gay or straight. I don't, but I feel like whenever I have conversations with my LGBTQ plus friends, for the most part, almost every time they're like, actually say this, or this is the better word for that, or, but, but, but you're trying and this is great. And I don't always feel that way in conversations with black people. And I feel like, first of all, that's on me to figure out for sure. But I also um, have been trying to force myself to be more uncomfortable in, in it's okay to be trying your best and get it wrong and then keep pu pushing forward. Um, but I feel like there's a real welcoming. And I don't know if that's because the LGBTQ fight is younger. So they feel like, even though it's been around forever, the activism around it and the, the policies and laws around it. Um, so they feel like, you know, you're trying, let's bring you in and jump on our side versus, um, you know, the hundreds of years of systemic racism. And it's like, okay, thanks for showing up. Why don't you go away and learn a lot more before you trouble me with this and, you know, you know, be better. Um, and that's hard. I think, like you said, cause we're so used to people taking it easy on us and we don't, we haven't earned that. We haven't earned it. And I think that, that that's a good way of putting it, that we haven't earned it. And I think that what I have learned um, is that relationships between black women and white women are very fraught. And that is because um, white women have historically caused a whole lot of pain um, to black women. And also that white women have over time, including me, including everyone, this is general, this is no part of me is suggesting that I'm an exception to this, is that when white women get involved with racism work, we just go, we show up for a minute and then we go when things get hard. Mm -hmm. And so um, this moment right now where so many white women are like, okay, I'm in now, I'm in now, is very complicated. Right. Right. Um, and so I just think that after hundreds of years of just trust being eroded and lost, it's going to take a hell of a lot of time. Um, and, and then also that our motivation can't be that black people start trusting us and loving us. Right. Right. Like the motivation, it can't even be that, that personal. It has to be that the motivation is just that like there are our human families that like we are killing each other. And so we're showing up because the, because it's, we're in a national emergency, right? And we just keep fighting and keep showing up as if it's happening to our family. Mm -hmm. And I believe that if white women do stick around for the first time, right? If white women do show up and stick around that eventually there will be healing, but it's not something that's going to happen in, in the first decade. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, we're running out of time and I could talk to you forever and ever and ever, but I want to ask about together rising um, just for people who don't know about it and maybe want to follow it um, or help support it. How did you even come up with this idea and how did it get to be something that has raised just millions and millions and millions of dollars? Well, um, the first thing, the way it started is I um, opened my email one day, 10 years ago, maybe, and there was an email from a woman who was running a home for pregnant uh, and young mother teens who were homeless up in Pennsylvania. And it was just this beautiful letter where she was pouring her heart out. She was devastated because the night before a 14-year-old girl had come to her front door holding a baby and she had to turn her away because of money and red tape and all of this. So she was just brokenhearted, pouring her heart out. So 
so I did what I do. I just decided that I was Wonder Woman and would fix this. So I called her and said, okay, no problem. I've got it. How much money do you need? I'm going to send it. She said, we, I need $80,000. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to need a new plan. <laughs> just forget everything I just said, because that is going to be a hard credit card bill to hide. Okay. So um, what happened is she just started telling me the story about her home and these girls, these young girls and their babies. And I kept listening to it. And I kept thinking, I wish that everybody in my community could hear this right now. Because if everybody in my community was hearing this story, every single one of them would want to do something, which is when I remembered that I am a writer. And so my actual literal job <laughs> is to write down stories <laughs> that other people can read. Yeah. Okay. So on that call is when I had the epiphany that I am a writer and I could be the bridge mm -hmm. between this story and all of the people. So she and I stayed up all night together, just like putting together the story. And then we decided we're going to post it the next day to my blog and we're going to raise money to get this girl. I said, if we raise the $80,000 by three o'clock, will you go get her? Will you find her and go get her? She said, yes, I promise. So we launched it. We called it a love flash mob because I'm obsessed with flash mobs. I'm trying to bring <laughs> them back. Um, and the beauty, and I think the magic of it is that we didn't let anyone donate more than $25. Hmm. Um, because I think that I just really wanted to democratize the giving, like the idea that givers should just be rich people who can like, just, I wanted a person for whom $25 was a big deal to feel as invested as somebody for whom that was nothing. Right. So, um, so anyway, that was the first love flash mob that really kicked off this together rising thing. We did raise $80,000 by three o'clock. I wrote to her and said, we've got it. Can you go get her? Mm -hmm. And she said, she said, we got her at noon. We, we believe she still gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Um, so anyway, years later, we've raised $27 million now. The average donation is still $28. We've become um, one of the leading organizations reuniting families at the border, um, serving uh, people for, in Syria with the refugee crisis, also building LGBTQ shelters here and working with really, we've been working a lot in black maternal health yeah. lately because that's just just out of proportion completely right. the number of black babies and black mothers who die in childbirth. Um, so our job is just to figure out what's breaking people's hearts and connect the brokenhearted warriors in their homes who actually want to do something mm -hmm. and the warriors on the ground in every single, um, in every single section who are already doing the work. So we know what we're, we we're good at and we know what we're not good yeah. at. We don't smart. We're not solving any of them. <laughs> there are already people in the ground that are have mostly, mostly led by women of color. Mm -hmm. These groups who have been in these communities and in these actions and know what, and are trusted by the communities and are doing the work and are not getting the funds because nonprofits who are led by white women get the funds, right? Nonprofits like mine. Yeah. Right. For sure. So our job is to gather the funds, find the groups that need it and get it to them. I so love once that. Again, we're yeah, I love that. Um, it's so smart and so wonderful. Um, we have to let you go um, because you're a busy lady. But before you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Everyone gets these same questions. They're a speed round. Number one, 
What's your desert island album? You can only have one. Um, Rites of Passage, Indigo Girl. Ooh, yes. I love you guys singing that on Instagram. Uh, it's just just the best. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Discipline. Mm, interesting for someone who struggled mm -hmm. so much. Isn't it? Interesting. Okay. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? I'm judgmental. I'm just the judgiest judge that ever judged. Yeah. I'm working on that one too. Mm -hmm. uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. Recently? I was drunk. I was oh. drunk. I was <laughs> drunk for 15 years. I would say, was it at a bar or a prison or both? <laughs> Bars. But I, but I did go to prison as a result. So just jail. <laughs> yeah. Just jail, not prison. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for one day, who would it be? I would not switch lives. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Like I was just thinking hard about it. I finally really, really like my life. I finally got into the point where I don't want anything different. And I just want more of the same. Oh, I love that. That's a great feeling to have. Um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? I have a recurring embarrassing situation, which is that people come up to me and I think that they want a picture with me. But really, it's always something about like my zippers down or my and this is this is a family joke or they come up to me and they go, hi, and I put on my humble face and say hi and they go, can you take a picture of and they point to Abby. So it's just like I'm trying. I just I want. It's like that poem that's like I want to be famous so I can be humble. What good is that my humility when I'm stuck in this obscurity? <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, that happened once with uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., where my friend asked him to take a picture of us because she didn't know who he was, and he just dived into the booth with us. And we were like, "Sure, this will be fun." I have done that exact thing. I have gotten in a picture with a bunch of women, and they were asking me to take it. <laughs> humiliating. Um, well, my husband calls himself Stedman whenever a guy's like, hey, take a picture of me and your wife. <laughs> like, sure, great. Yeah, I'm Stedman <laughs> in my relationship. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Mm, I wish that if I could click my heels, I would have zero body and food images. I mean, um, yeah, that's that I think a, I'm going to for the rest of my life. Yeah, I heard you tell, uh, I think it was Dax Shepard, that 50% of your day is thinking about food or your body. And uh, I might be able to up you on that one, which is really sad. Really? Yeah. And actually, my friend, that was one of the things she wanted to ask you about was the video that you made about like control and a woman who had written you about the body issues and said she wasn't sure if you would understand because you're so thin. <sighs> Um, Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. It's like, how do you think I got this? Like, oh, oh, yeah, sister's so thin no too. And I'm like, your genes must be just killer. Yeah. yeah. But everybody's got their own, their own thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, 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 I, you called it opportunity cost. And I was like, mm -hmm. yes, the amount of time that I waste on that. And there's books to be read and like people to be helped and other things to spend my time on. It's. That's the cost of that shit. So that's frustrating. It is mm -hmm. so frustrating. Um, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? No penalty kicks. <laughs> I, would, I would remove penalty kicks. They are too much pressure. No one should have to go through it. There should be no parents of goalies. There should be no, it should just be a tie. Or if they're going to. Oh, don't get started on tie. Abby wants. 
I know I'm not allowed to say tie to you people. Okay. <laughs> Everybody wins. No, or if lose. there are going to be penalty kicks, there should be mental health professionals <laughs> and puppies on the sidelines. Okay, puppies, I'll get I'll get with puppies, but um, yeah. If nobody nobody wins, then everybody loses. Um, <laughs> number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Mm. Okay, so I actually am gonna say that the most one of the most scared I've ever been is that time that I just told you about when I screwed up that whole racial justice action yeah. and the whole internet was mad at me. And that says a lot about the privilege of my life, that that's the most scared I've ever been. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was in the fetal position for a couple of days. Yeah. That. It's a bad feeling. It's a really bad feeling, especially when you're like, I, I think I'm coming from the right place and I'm doing my best. How is it this awful if I'm coming from a place of what I think is goodness? Um, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Hmm. Well, I would like to strike Christian mommy blogger from the record. That's for damn sure. It'll be on my freaking tombstone. Yeah. I swear to God. Your obituary is already written. <laughs> <laughs> um, I tell my kids that all I want for them to be, which I guess would be the same, is brave, wise, and kind. Brave, wise, and kind. I like that. That's really good. Uh, and the bonus question, who should I have on this podcast? Who's amazing? Who should I talk to? Mm. I think that it would be interesting right now. Have you had Brittany Packnett yet? I'm in the midst of communicating. She is mm. uh, she's exclusive to like NBC News or something. So we're trying to get around it and make it happen because she's awesome. She's my favorite teacher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would do what you got to do. Yeah. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to tell her, her that you said so. Yeah. Write yeah. to her manager right now and be like, well, I'm so sorry, but this come from an edict. Yeah, powerful she's the white best. woman. <laughs> <laughs> NBC News. And she'll be like, no. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I would like the record to show that Glennon Duell just finished this podcast by giving me the finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was so fun. I wish we were best friends. And, um, you know, we met once at a Gatorade dinner and sat at the same table when you and Abby were early in your courting and you were with the kiddos. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, you and, don't have to remember Dan, me, but you were there, and I was yeah, there. We briefly yeah. talked, and I was like, "There's that Christian mommy blogger." <laughs> <Do it now>. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, she's gonna say grace. Yeah, she's gonna say yeah, grace like, at the theater. She's gonna ask me about Jesus. Um. <laughs> uh, this was awesome, Glennon. You're the best. Thank you so much, and congrats on the book being as successful as it is uh, deservedly meant to be. Mm. Thank you, guys. I love every minute of this. This is awesome. <laughs> That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, it's people who want to shit on something just because everybody else likes it. And yes, I am talking about Hamilton. I watched Hamilton, the, uh, the movie version on Disney+, Plus, the very day that it came out on a giant inflatable big screen outside with my family, which was pretty badass and super cool. And I had only seen it once in person, in the theater, and I'm not someone who has, you know, bought the soundtrack and, and sung along every day, but I'm going to be now. Uh, and I loved it even more than when I saw it in person because I could see the facial expressions and, you know, knew the storyline better and the songs better now. And I thought it was amazing and worthy of every piece of praise that it's gotten, if not more so. And then I go on to Twitter and my colleague Amin El Hassan is just shitting all over it. Why aren't they talking more? Do they, are they really going to sing every word in this thing? Um, yes, they do. 
That's how some musicals are or rap operas or however you want to qualify it. Uh, and I get that he was not maybe trying to shit all over. It. In fact, he had to come back around later and apologize for the people who thought he was just dissing it. Uh, when in fact, he just was mildly confused and didn't really enjoy it that much. But my point is, is that it's not necessary to go tell everybody that you didn't like it uh, or to be contrarian just for the sake of it, which not just a mean, but many other people were about Hamilton this weekend. Oh, I couldn't even finish watching it. I, they, they sing too fast. I wish they would slow down. I wish they would talk more of it. Like maybe just watch it more than once or do a little research about American history so that you know the general storyline. It is based in actual factual events that you could go back and research and then you'd have a little idea of what's happening and then the music would just be a nice way of telling you it without you needing to listen to every single word perfectly in order to understand what's going on. One day if I snap, it's probably gonna be about this because again, every, you're allowed to not like it and even not watch it and even start it and then stop in the middle. It's a bad opinion because it's wonderful, but you're allowed to have it. You just don't need to tell everyone that. And I hate, it's like the people who are like, it's a beautiful sunny day. Ugh, I hate when it's hot out. And then in the winter, everyone's, you know, it's so cold out. Oh, I love it when it's so cold out. I like it cold. Don't be a contrarian just to be different. It's really annoying. And also, I don't go around messaging people, oh, wow, you seem to be enjoying that NASCAR race. I think NASCAR is stupid. Oh, wow, you really like country music? I think it's trash. Why do we care about sharing that stuff? Just let people enjoy what they like, including, and this is also related to this weekend, ketchup on hot dogs. Yeah, I said it. I'm from Chicago. I don't care if you put ketchup on your hot dog. I don't care if you put mayonnaise on your hot dog. I don't care if you put strawberry jam on your hot dog. Whatever you want to do. I mean, I'd prefer it was a vegetarian hot dog because I'm a vegetarian. But whatever. Do your thing, man. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. If it's not hurting someone else, and if it's not necessary to share your shitty ass opinion about something that everyone else is enjoying, then keep it to yourself. There, I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for me to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll fix it on a future podcast. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 